0: Good evening, and thanks very much for coming out. Uh, Welcome to the Public Lectures series. I'm Sam Wong, I'm in the Neuroscience program in the Department of Molecular Biology, but the reason I'm here is that I'm chair of the Public Lectures Committee, and so I'm glad that you're all here tonight. Um, We have a really good series this year, uh, and I'm really pleased to uh, introduce Professor Elaine Oran Tonight, she's the third in our series. And if you're interested in the other speakers in the series, which cover all range of intellectual endeavors, you can read about them all by going to our website at lectures.princeton.edu, and so uh, you can read up on everyone uh, in that series. Professor Oren's lecture tonight is part of the Lewis Clark Vanuxem Lecture Series. This series is made possible by a request from the estate of Lewis Clark Vanuxem of the class of 1879 and Vinuxim pursued a career in insurance. He eventually specialized in insurance law, but he had an interest in science apparently because the goal of the Vinuxim lectures is to bring to Princeton a series of public lectures on subjects of both scientific interest and other subjects as well. Past Vinuxim lecturers have included the astronomer Edwin Hubble on the exploration of space, the astrophysicist Carl Sagan on extraterrestrial life, the educator and scientist James Conant on the mobilization of American scientists for the war. And in addition, this series has also featured the writers Thomas Mann and Ralph Ellison. So you can see that it's quite a diverse series. Tonight, Professor Oren will be introduced by Richard Miles, who is the professor in charge of Applied Physics Group in the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering. Professor Miles.
1: Well, let me begin by introducing Elaine as one of those people whom I love to see at a conference. Uh, She's full of ideas. She knows what's going on pretty much everywhere. And she's plain fun, which is sometimes an unusual trait at engineering and physics conferences, as you might imagine. I recall an evening at the Hertz Foundation dinner in San Francisco with my wife, Susan, Elaine, and her husband, Danny where her quiet but pithy remarks during the rather boring after-dinner speech had us all roaring with laughter and brought us to tears as we tried to suppress that laughter (laughs) during the evening. And another event was the taxicab ride in Toronto. You remember our taxicab ride in Toronto, Elaine? The taxicab driver challenged us to stump him in a geography quiz for a free ride. Danny and Elaine leapt to the challenge. <laughs> and we had such a great time on the way to, from the airport to the hotel that we gave him an extra big tip. So much for the free ride. Uh, somehow fun things happen around Elaine. She is, in addition to being fun, one of the most distinguished scientists in the United States. This year, she will achieve, uh, receive the Achievement Award from the Society of Women Engineers in the next few days, their highest honor. In 2004, she received the Presidential Rank Award for Meritorious Senior Professional. The prior year, she was elected to the National Academy of Engineers. And in 2002, she was honored with the Dryden Lectureship in Research, one of the top honors of the American Institute of of Aeronautics and Astronautics, the AIAA, um, an institute that she has been a very active participant in. The list goes on. In 2001, she became an honorary professor of the University of Wales. And in 2000, she received the Zeldovich Gold Medal of the Combustion Institute. She's a fellow of the AIAA, a fellow of the American Physical Society, and she's currently editor in chief of the AIAA Journal, a lead publication for the 30,000 members of that organization. After getting her undergraduate degree at a highly respected institution, Bryn Mawr, she moved to Yale for her master's and her Ph.D. Her citation by the National Academy states, for unifying engineering, scientific, and mathematical disciplines into a computational methodology to solve challenging aerospace combustion problems. I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Elaine Oren, who will speak to you, on Matchstick's and other things.
2: <laughs> okay. Now I have to get all, all of the various wires and things hooked up here. So this, is, this gets turned on, you should suddenly be able to, can you hear me? Oh great, okay, that's a good start and the next thing the computer has to get turned on and that's a good start we have a piece of a picture here um, help <laughs> help i have a is there someone there who can fix the audiovisual problem we have Is this something I'm doing, Jim? Yeah. it's I'm only getting half a, an eighth of a screen here. This worked, by the way, ten minutes ago. Try
1: clicking on whatever the icon is, and we'll see if it goes.
2: No, you see, we're only getting a piece of it. Shoot! Should... Oh no, 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 no! Just put it's it to sleep and turn it on on again. Sorry, guys. I've never seen this happen before, naturally. Okay. Ah! Okay. Terrific. All right. We're going to have a talk after all. Okay. Apple L. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, thank you all very much for this invitation to speak here this evening. It's a real treat for me to be back at Princeton where I have so many friends and so many family ties. It feels, it always has felt like home. And uh, I'm really honored to be here on this very special occasion. Um, What I'm going to be talking about tonight is numerical simulation. Now, what I'm going to try to do is to show you what numerical simulation is, and I'm going to try to explain to you how very powerful it is and how it can be used for a very wide range of problems, from engineering design through scientific exploration. And what a, the underlying thread here is that we're applying similar methods and similar concepts and similar procedures to a wide variety of problems in our universe and objects in our universe, ranging from engines to matchsticks to suns to black holes. And I hope I can do this coherently. I moved this slide from later on in the talk here, and I'll come back to it again, but I have a different reason for wanting to show this now. What I... would this... Oh, great. Uh, what I would like to do to begin with is show you, is try to give you a feel for the process of numerical simulation before I get into specific examples. The starting point is always some observation of the real world. And from that observation, we engineers and mathematicians and physicists and chemists construct a mathematical model. Now, this is usually a rather complicated set of partial or integral differential equations, which would take up more, than, more time to explain than I have tonight. Sometimes it's not even a set of equations, but it's an algorithm or a procedure. But nonetheless, it's a set of rules, and sometimes in an equation form, for how these processes change in space and time. Now, when the problem is very, very complex, there's no simple mathematical solution for this at all. And when there isn't, we need a computer to solve this problem. So what do we do? We construct a numerical model or algorithm to solve the set of equations that we've come up with, or to solve the algorithm that we've come up with. What we do is we take the set of numerical, of of these complex equations and rules, and we transform them into an algebraic set of equations. We transform these into a set of equations the computer can deal with. There's several fields involved here already. This is the field of numerical analysis. This is not a unique transformation, to use a technical term here. There are many ways of getting a set of equations that the computer can solve from the numerical from the equations. But I'll talk more about that later. You take these set of equations, you solve them on a computer, and of course, as um, as I'll point out, the computer solution is often not unique not a unique solution. It depends on all of these things, introduces errors. And then we analyze these res- results, and we present them, and we compare the results to the things we see around us and the things we compute. And this is the process of numerical simulation. Now, what I'm going to be talking about today, the examples I'm going to give you are numerical simulations of complicated, complex, fluid dynamic flow systems this is a multidisciplinary field that combines and combines knowledge and methods from science mathematics engineering computer science and engineering a lot goes into this Uh, but the slide doesn't change (laughs) there we go oops back one now when i say complex here what i mean is complex physics geometry and chemistry And this approach that we have developed, and I've tried to explain to you briefly, is is very multidisciplinary, and it is an approach that teaches us a lot and gives us a lot to work with. It teaches us how things work, and how do we contest our theories and expand our intuition of the physical world around us. It shows us how to design systems and how to combine disparate elements into a design. And I'm going to be showing all of these things with examples in a minute. It shows the importance of the fundamental interactions in physics and chemistry and science and gives us a way to study them. It describes an enormous range of physical science problems and I'm going to be uh, showing you this range. And it's and the curiosity here is it's enabled by a generality of the governing equations, and that's rather technical, but I think you'll understand when I get to that. And it's very much pushed and pushed by and driven by the limits and, uh, and the advances in computer science and technology. Now, in order to explain this to you, I'm going to very quickly look at a series of examples, starting from objects under the sea through to way up in the stars. I'm going to quickly be telling you about a fish, a torpedo launch, a Navy destroyer, the Shinkansen train, a car that's subject to a large blast, an explosion or, uh, or, a, or, a, or a turbulent fire, an insect, a terrorist attack on a well-known Washington obj- objet, <laughs> re-entry of uh, a satellite, or a a spacecraft into the atmosphere, a coronal magnetic eruption, and a, a type one supernova. Now, all of these objects are complex in totally different ways, but there are underlying similarities, which I'll explain. All of them, there's a range of problems I'm going to be describing to you very quickly now. Some of these are engineering problems that have been used in the past for design and uh, are no longer used but i can show you some of the things that they've been used to design and test some of these problems are being used now some of these uh, solutions are being used now for various things and some of them are nowhere ready to be used for anything yet but they're getting there the other point i want to make before i begin to describe some of these problems is that these are not inclusive of all the work that's going on in the world. <laughs> They're representative of a wide body of work. And the ones I've chosen are the ones that were most easily available to me, and, uh, and, I, and, I, and I had friends who could help me and explain them to me. Okay. Let's start off... You might want to dim this a little bit, if, if, if you can, please. Let's start off with this with this right here let me click this and you'll see what I mean this the the birdrass is a little fish about eight inches long which goes through the water at about well it can fly it can go in it can go upstream in a five knot current it is absolutely an amazing little fish i actually saw these when i was diving ne- uh, near bali once and i was down in a drift dive and this little fish was just swimming right past me and it was a hard current now these little fish will flap their their pectoral fins at something like three hertz and in the and generate enough Enough, lit, enough force to get themselves through the water, one of the big areas now that people are looking at are flexible membranes, and how, how this little fish can generate uh, so much force from this, from this motion where it moves its fin as it comes up in this particular simulation, the way it was done was space was broken up into something like a million te- a million triangular pieces actually tetrahedron, which changed dynamically in time to be able to model how this fin moves up and down. The actual movement of the fin was taken from the measurement of a fish. And one of the interesting results of this computation, which was really pretty much state-of-the-art when, when it was being done, and probably still is, is they learned that the way it, you very much needed a time-dependent dynamic calculation in order to be able to calculate the right forces on the body of this fish. In some ways, a much harder calculation was the launch of this torpedo. Again, it took about a million of these spatial elements to to do this calculation. And why is this torpedo a hard calculation to do? It's very hard because as the torpedo is launched, it's launched by a water jet from uh, from the bay. So it's launched by this water jet, this water coming back into the bay, and there's a sheer motion induced between the, the torpedo and the obstacle, so it's very hard, I mean, and the, uh, and the ship. So it's a very hard calculation because of all these different fluid dynamic effects to get right. And this was done for a design, a design issue uh, on the torpedo. OK, let me keep moving here. You uh, Click on this and go down. You should get the next one. Whoops wrong way Okay The calculate, this is a very interesting calculation because it's really quite different Whereas we had divided space into many parts before in uh, in tetrahedron here It's all rectangular elements and the idea here is this this destroyer is going through, over the, through the ocean at 20 knots and it has a 20 knot headwind, headwind. One of the problems here is that the gases from the stack would interact with the shape of the ship behind it and make it very difficult to land a helicopter on the deck in the back. This calculation that was done had, was done for two, re- two reasons really. One was the design of the bay doors right here. They found that if the bay doors were a certain design and were kept open, it was a lot easier for this helicopter to land on the deck. The other thing this, ca- this calculation was used for was to create uh, virtual reality of, uh, progr- uh, data for training the people who were going to land the helicopter on the deck. The Shinkansen. The Shinkansen goes now at something like 300 kilometers uh, an hour, uh, uh, and this is this is probably one of the fastest trains we now have. Um, what they want this train to go is at something like um, 550 kilometers an hour, and pretty soon it will. The problem here is that when a train goes this fast through a tunnel. The sound waves build up into shock waves. And what comes out the other end are horrible sonic booms. The idea here is how you would design the train to come through the tunnel to minimize the effect. Uh, now, what they found from these calculations was that the placement of the tracks and the shape of the wall was very important. And you could, in fact, design a shinkansen so that it, to minimize the effects of the shock coming out at the other end and this will actually be operating fairly soon the interesting thing is here is that the uh, the increased pressure on the head of the train is felt even before the train goes through the tunnel one other interesting thing is this is a very complicated physical grid to describe this Uh, it was a okay in 2001 there was not only the horrible tragedy in New York but there was also a very interesting uh, accidental tragedy in Toulouse Uh, 300 tons of ammonium nitrate blew up now if that shock and it did had hit this Dodge Neon you would probably see something like this this is a a calculation which is really quite different the difficulty in this, a shock hitting the Dodge Neon, is that it's it's you have the interaction of the gas with the structure of the car. And this combines two very different algorithms, one for the fluid, and the, one for the air, and one for the structure of the car uh, in order to, to be able to come up with, the, with how the structure changes. One thing you'll notice is missing from the calculation is that there's no model in it for how the glass breaks up and you would expect this to be totally shattered. The other very interesting thing of this calculation is the whole thing is over, the car is totally smashed up and the tires are just fine. Uh, that's <laughs> Now, this picture up here of the car, which has been hit by a shock and is blowing up perhaps, well, we could change the paradigm here totally. This doesn't have to be a shock. It doesn't have to be a, a car. It could be a, a plane. It could be a spacecraft. It could be a, a ship. Um, explosions and, and, and fires cause enormous amount of damage every year. Uh, it's, it's incredible. and. It's the problem, the, the, the problem of, of of predicting and figuring uh, and knowing what's going on is very is perhaps one of the most difficult that I've ever looked at. The issue is not only can you cause this kind of ex, uh, explosions and fires from catastrophic things like happened, what happened at the World Trade Tower, but sometimes you can occur, uh, have just as much damage and just as much of a problem when. A can falls over in a campyard, in a campground, for example. What happened in the uh, in the Torres del Paine National Park in Chile when a a campground, a can that was a cooking can, fell over, caused a fire that wiped out millions of acres of forest land. In that case, the event that caused the tragedy was really small compared to the size of the tragedy itself. When you get problems as complicated as this. You don't always go to large simulations to figure them out. You have to go to the basic fundamental issues and see if you can understand them. And here are some examples of some of those fun, of, of numerical simulations that have tried to get out some of the basic fundamental issues. The one up here, and it has the red mark around it because it's something I'm going to get back to in much more detail later, is a, the fu- a fundamental combustion problem of how. Um, a flame will transition into a detonation Uh, the one I'm showing down here is a simple flame, here's my matchstick a diffusion flame Uh, by the way the person who did the graphics here was a student at the University of Colorado and this was one of his creating these graphics from the detailed calculations we did was his senior project, his subsequent job is with Hollywood (laughs) doing animations. Okay, another area that's that's becoming very important. Uh, When I heard that Professor Nakahashi was going to be doing simulations of a hornet, I didn't know what he was going to do. I didn't know whether he was going to do the plane, the motorcycle, and there's even a destroyer. In fact, he was looking at this incredibly complex problem of the insect. And to do this calculation, he had to to combine a number of different gridding methods. This is an overlaid grid technique, which is a very complicated grid that he could use to do do the body of the insect on a simpler background. And I was able to take a few of his pictures and combine them. Afterwards, I found out, by the way, these things flap at about 100 hertz, whereas the fish was was, was moving its fins at about three hertz what's kind of amusing here is afterwards i found out that he used he didn't know what the motion of the wing of this insect was so what he did was took the motion of the fish and put it onto the insect apparently and that became very common thing to do to use the the uh the kind of turning motion of the fish in insect calculations um, As I mentioned to you before, there's a lot of work that's being done now in flexible membranes and how they can really increase uh, the, the, uh, the performance of a body. Perhaps we'll have planes someday with flexible wings. But the same kind of flexible membranes was used here for this Hornet calculation, which is considerably more recent. Okay, this is a topic I'm going to get back to, so I won't spend a lot of time on it now. A very big issue in Washington now is what happens if a contaminant is released in an, in an area with a civilian population. How do you move people? How do you evacuate the area? This was an early simulation of a contaminant release uh, near, the, near the Pentagon, and uh, it's a three-dimensional calculation. Took a lot of computer time at the time and we were and uh, this was those of you who know washington this is the pentagon this is this is interstate 395 this is the fashion fashion center over here (laughs) and you can actually tell people if the release is here this is where you don't want your office to be for example Um, this kind of a calculation we found that things were very important such as the winds the particular direction of the winds, how long the release is, the trees, the terrain, the solar heating, and so forth. I'm going to get back to this later and show you how far that technology has gone. Moving in, into space, um, this, the Busa C space capsule, um, I think they've changed the name of it now. But it was very interesting. It's a Japanese spacecraft. It was sent to the nearest uh, asteroid to pick up a sample, and it's supposed to come back in around 2007. I don't know if it'll make 2007, but it will be close. I think it's on the route back now, as a matter of fact. One of the interesting things about this problem, it was a re-entry problem. They are not using the usual parachutes that we often use in our um, re-entry vehicles to slow them down. So, whoops, that was the wrong one. Go back uh, to slow them down um, what they're doing uh, is designing they wanted to design the capsule so that it was stable uh, on re-entry if they put it into a certain direction and these calculations were used to show that the importance of the various shock interactions on the um, with the, with the background fl- turbulent flow in the space capsule and gave them some idea gave some idea of how to design the shape of this capsule okay Um, into space now solar eruptions a billion tons of material launched into space at a million miles an hour over a period of two hours coronal magnetic eruptions this is a, a, a topic i'm going to get back to because i think some of the work in this is very exciting um, the, what you're looking here up here is an experiment. This is helium ultraviolet spectrum of the sun, and this is a white light coronagraph, which gives you these lines up here. This is the beginnings of an early calculation, and I'll get more into the calculations of these magnetic field lines and how they behave and how the, the material is ejected into space. Okay, we're getting there now. Next and the last topic i wanted to cover quickly was this thermonuclear supernova which is a favorite topic of mine before this bla- this this is the uh, galaxy ngc4536 before the uh, supernova this is the super super during the supernova event when the the light emitted was at a high point here uh, became, we called 1981 b now, this is an amazing combustion event which takes about two seconds. The star has existed for about two billion years, and then all of a sudden, in two seconds, it's erupted, released 10 to the 51 ergs of energy, and leaves essentially nothing behind except higher elements. We believe that the original star was a white dwarf star. Um, I'm going to show you a, a graphic of what's happened to one in the Virgo cluster here. Um, This to give you more of a feel for it When I push the button you'll see a movie You'll see in the movie The the star reaching the most intense level And then the supernova And then decaying And there's also a plot here Which shows the the brightness of the star And how it peaks in about 18 days And then it dies in about a year Um, This is our grounds Our truth That we compare the results to the reason these supernova have become important is because of their, their importance to cos, in cosmology. Um, we're using them as standard fiducial measurement points in the, in the universe to be able to determine the age of the universe, the curvature of the universe, and even the amount of dark matter and dark energy. Uh, what these are are really a fascinating combustion laboratory. And, um, To show you that i'll show you a simulation here that we've done of the explosion of a supernova now this what we have been able to simulate here is the as the very early stages of the explosion but to date the simulations have not been from first principles able to produce that spectra that i showed you before a possible solution And we think that the answer here is that there is a transition from a deflagration, from a flame to a detonation, Uh, but we really don't know that. And the only way that we could determine that would be to be able to do the whole calculation. This is one of those problems where we have a ways to go um, in the problem. Let me show you the next view graph here. This is a very big calculation that I showed you. Uh, the current calculation I showed you of the supernova is probably the largest one I have showed you to date. took something like 19,000 hours of, CP, of computer time. Um, but to do the calculation to determine whether it's a, a, a deflagration, a detonation event, would take an awful lot more than we can do now. And my current prediction is that we might be able to do this calculation in in 19,000 hours 105 years from now so I don't expect to be able to see it uh, from first principles okay let's move on with that so there you have a range of calculations and a range of examples of the application of simulation some of which have been very useful in current problems some of which are currently being used and some of which have quite a ways to go now when you look at all of these examples you can see that I've shown you a range of physical scales that, uh, that, that cover 10 orders of magnitude from the smallest to the largest. And that's quite a range. I could have stretched that, by the way, and made that perhaps about 10 to the 15 orders of magnitude. They all invar- involve various kinds of complex physics, physics, chemistry, diffusion processes, electromagnetic fields and radiation. Uh, all kinds of chemical or thermonuclear reactions, phase reactions, surface effects, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the interesting thing is when we write down the set of equations to describe these very, very varied phenomena, which look so different, there are similarities in the underlying form of these equations. And I think that it is this seemingly rather trivial point that has let us get as far as we have in understanding a lot of these phenomena. Um, what's the equation? What's the underlying equation? It's really very simple, and, you, and I will show some equations tonight, not too many, and it's what's called a generalized continuity equation. And many of the standard equations that we solve in, chemi- in engineering and physics and in chemistry are in fact, a subgroup of this class of equations. Um, so, the, you know, you can, you can get sort of deep about this and say, why is this form so generally valid uh, for these very different situations? And I think the answer is really very simple and it's that we conserve mass momentum and energy and that it, when a conserved quantity moves from here to there, And there's no loss term. It's just going to move, and you have to conserve it. So the the reason is simply causality and conservation. And those are the reasons that that equation is valid. Now, so that there's a lucky point in the simulation game. uh, And that is that the mathematical and the numerical techniques that uh, that were required to solve that generalized continuity equation They uh, are the same for a very, very wide range of problems. Okay? And another observation before I go on. And that's that we need to study parts of problems and isolate parts of problems or we can't understand the whole problem at all, especially these large multidisciplinary problems. And what we can do with simulation is use it to understand the different parts of the problem and then combine them. Um, Now, it's these fundamental issues that I think have application to the broad range of problems. It's why this deflagration to detonation problem that I mentioned that's so important for safety issues is also important for the supernova. It's a very fundamental problem. So we can sometimes solve a problem that's good in the laboratory, and it will be good for something in outer space or for designing an engine. Now, what we have learned from these simulations, by simulating a very wide variety of systems, we've learned a number of things. We've learned to approach a problem efficiently, we've learned to deal with very complex physics and geometry, we've learned to mistrust the input data, and we've learned to mistrust our answers. And we've learned learned something very important, is that simulations which are not always perfect can still be very, very useful. Uh, And the other thing that we've learned is how to use graphics to represent a very large amount of data. And this itself is an art form, I think, to be able to pick out what you want to look at and to look at it using graphics. And that these time-dependent calculations are really very, the only way to study them is to view them in a, in, a, in, a movie way, in a movie, in a time-dependent way. Because otherwise, you get the completely wrong interpretation of what's happening. What I'm going to do now is take three of these topics that I mentioned before and talk, to the, talk about them in a little more detail. And to me, these are some of the three most exciting. One is this coronal magnetic ejections and eruptive flares. Um, I mentioned before that that these are solar events in which a billion tons of material are thrown at a million miles an hour uh, in about a two hour period. And it takes anywhere from eight hours to a day or so for this to build up on the sun until this happens. The triggering mechanism is, uh, is, well, that's again a subject of some debate. Let me, uh, let me just show you the initial conditions and then I'm going to show you the results of a simulation um, of one of these events. The triggering mechanism here that they've used in this, in this particular simulation we've used here is an imposed region of shear, you know, material moving this way and this way against each other in the, uh, in the photosphere of the sun it would be right around here. And the initial condition is quadruple, quadruple fields going, going on the inside uh, from this direction, and, and, and on the, in the corona, they're going in this direction. And what you're going to see in the movie is what happens as a result of this shear. And I hope that this movie works right. There we go. Okay, what happens is the inner and outer field, fields are pushed to the side as they reconnect and change their shape. Now what happens, this pushes the outlying fields outwards, the sheared field rises, eventually you get this eruption um, of flux ropes, they're called. And then eventually it settles down again, and that's the end of the eruption process. Okay, and everything reconnects and it equilibrates. I think that this is a simply amazing calculation. I'm not going to show, that I don't want to show. And let me try to tell you why I think so. This is a a magnetohydrodynamic calculation of magnetic flux eruption and reconnection. Very difficult problem. The, The physics itself is very complex here. Magnetic field reconnection, magnetic flux, flux rope formation, and plasma ejection. Uh, The flow is initially very simple, and it becomes, in time, very complex. I'm going to let it run again here. Very complex. To do this calculation, we had to develop very special high-order algorithms and special methods for doing the the gridding of physical space in order to be able to keep resolution around these these magnetic flux lines. Um, it took a lot of years to get to the point where this calculation can be done, both in terms of methods and in terms of our just being able to do the calculations and understanding the physics that are going on here. So I think, I think that this is a pretty amazing calculation. I just, I'm not going to show you the 2D versions of it. Um, work in this area is still going on. Now, one of the reasons that these are so important, these, um, these coronal magnetic eruptions, is because they essentially determine space weather, they uh, affect geoma- geomagnetic storms, and it's not entirely clear what their influence is or whether they're influencing or influenced by the solar cycle. So they're quite important. Work in these are still going on, and the technical reason for, for what's happening is really quite complex, but I won't talk about it now. But I think, there's, uh, I think we've come a long way in understanding these in the last couple of years. The other area that I think is making enormous progress is this area of contaminant transport through cities. We believe now that we need realistic, reliable models of, how the, how, uh, of releases that could occur in urban areas. These are releases of things they call agents, which could be droplets, particles, vapors, gas, could be anthrax, could be something else. And these are affected by background winds, trees, buildings, solar heating, highways, hills. It's really a, a very interesting and complicated problem. I originally showed you some early calculations uh, 3D time-dependent calculations of of a contaminant release that was near the Pentagon. Now things have gotten much more complicated. We can do whole city areas, this, uh, and ask these questions about how these contaminants trans spread, how quickly they spread. Here you can see one that was done in an area that models the Washington Mall. It's similar to the Washington Mall. And you have uh, the simulation is on an, as a 3D fluid calculation, dynamic in an area that's 1.5 by 1.5 kilometers on the edge and, and 0.4 kilometers high with winds in various directions. This one is three miles an hour from the east. And the release was at ground level what they found is that particles are caught up in the wind, and then they move downstream. stream, And they're really affected by recirculation of buildings. In fact, the most important thing uh, that's been found is the importance of the geometry, the effects of the buildings, um, and, and how, they, and how, that's, and how they deter- that determines what's going to be happening to the contaminant. Um, by doing this series of calculations where they vary the wind, we vary the wind directions and, um, and, and keep the geometry fixed, uh, there's a number of rules that have emerged for how to evacuate people uh, that, can re- that could be used to save a lot of lives. Uh, let me just run this movie again. Uh, one, of the, one of the things they've learned is that mate- when the material is first released, a lot of the contaminant gets caught up in vortices around the initial buildings that, uh, that, that, it hit, that, the, that it hits, and then it just releases more slowly in time. Some of the things that have been learned here um, are that the simpler models that people were talking about, the things called diffusion models, give the absolutely wrong answers. This is the 3D fluid calculation that I showed you. These are results of of various diffusion models. The answers are quite different, both qualitatively and quantitatively. Uh, You would kill many more people if you use this model than if you use that model. Um, Interesting things that have, that another interesting thing here is that unless we had done calculations of very simple systems, like just this flow over an obstacle and how it interacts with boundary layers, and how it moves material through the system. There is no way we could have understood a problem as hard, for example, as vortex structures forming on uh, things like the Washington Monument. Now that this particular kind of calculation has really come a long way since in the last few years, we're not only we're not just looking at small regions of cities. We have these calculations done through many cities, with many, uh, with done at many different wind uh, wind velocities and angles, and the data synthesized so that it could all was, a lot of it can be put in tables on handhelds and used by cities, and FBI's and other kinds of agent of uh, emergency situ in other other kinds of agent uh, organizations concerned with emergency situations. Uh, let me just show you one of these. One of the cl- neatest things is what the, um, the the fire people, the firemen and policemen in Chicago decided that that once they had these, they knew there was, they had these cal- kinds of calculations, and they knew where people had to move in term when there was an emergency, they could. Arrange the traffic lights. You see, there's no way you can drive out. There would just be a total log jam. But they can arrange the traffic lights in the city to tell people the direction to move. Green is where they should be going. If something is red, they shouldn't go there. important thing to learn out of this is if there is a release, you don't go downstream (laughs) with with the contaminant. You go sideways to get out. And you want to know where sideways is and how to get out okay I think I can stop this now okay let's go on maybe nope wrong okay and the, and the last topic I want to go into in some depth depth is fluid dynamics with fast energy release this is my scramjet problem it's also related to astrophysics now This is the situation where I told you before that sometimes when things get so complicated, what you have to do is go back to the simplest physics problem and try to understand it. And and that can give you some insight into what's happening. There's one thing that we know is that when you have a a supersonic detonation wave, that's a wave that's moving very, very fast, the reaction wave, you can make it slow down into... Into a small, into a lower velocity, less dangerous wave. That's a flame and a sh- uh, uh, and, and a shock running off ahead of it. Now you can do one thing. One way this was done. These was through these op, these devices called detonation arresters. And this is an example of a simulation that was done to design a detonation arrestor. And this was the actual experiment. And this led to a number of patented devices in Germany. And it's really fascinating to think that a device the size of a kitchen can opener could have stopped that explosion in Toulouse had it been properly, properly placed. A much harder problem than slowing than, than turning a shock, a, def, a detonation into a def, deflagration, a weaker, is what turns a flame into, or a deflagration into a detonation. And these are difficult issues which span, a, which are interesting for a lot of different problems. Safety, engine design, astrophysics. We've did quite a bit of work to try to understand what caused this transition. I'm going to show you a, very, a fundamental calculation which gave us a huge hint into what was going on. And the fundamental calculation was just of a shock, which, was, which is a, super, uh, a supersonic wave hitting a flame, okay? And, uh, this is, and here you're going to see a piece of the flame and the shock hitting it. Now I want you to watch it because it goes by pretty quickly. Whoops, that's the wrong one. And afterwards, I'm going to tell you the fundamental thing that we learned from this that was so important. This was a shock hitting the flame, and it turns it into this turbulent flame, distorted flame, all sorts of fluid instabilities. The shock is reflected from a wall of a boundary layer here. The flame is caught up in the boundary layer. And now, oops, there it went. It went up top. Now, let me stop this and move it back and I want to show you what's probably the fundamental thing that we learned here here's the flame turbulent flame this is unreacted material here it's not burned yet but there are shocks running through it now I advanced this a little in time what you see is ignition up here in the unreacted material. So this is going to become a detonation, but the detonation is not going to be this flame turning into a supersonic wave. It's going to start independently. So this detonation is going to start in unreacted material and move through the system. So the fundamental piece of physics that we learned from these simulations, it's not a flame that turns into a detonation, but the flame creates the condition in unreacted material where this can happen. That's very important. And that's going to be very important for understanding the supernova too. And it's going to be very important for us in helping us to to help Shimizu Corporation design these hydrogen fuel stations. This is a typical design that they have now. And it has a lot of little channels and places where there could be leakages of this hydrogen. And what I'd like to show you, but I may have time to show you when this is over, but I'm not gonna take the time now, is what happens when you have a little spark in a channel with a series of obstacles in it, um, and how this can become something extremely dangerous Now, this is something that they're going to have to watch out for in the design. Okay. now, those were my three big examples. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit in more generalities now. All of the calculation I showed you, all these 10 orders of magnitude, of range of things, have used one sort of set of equations, this generalized continuity equation I showed you before. It's actually just. A piece, it's very a very important part of our reality, but it's just a piece it's just a, 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 just one equation, one range of variables in a large hierarchy of, of equations. Now, that, these break down, these totally break down under as soon as you go to a regime where, th- where, where you can't say that there's a certain sorts of equilibrium. They break down when there are too few molecules in the collision uh, uh, molecular collisions and the continuing assumptions that we've made that allow us to write down that generalized continuity equation are no longer valid. And this occurs high in the atmosphere where there aren't too many molecules And it also occurs in these gaseous components of microsensors that are becoming important now for for detection. These equations also break down when the bodies are very massive or they move very fast. An example of that is black holes and and also various kinds of relativistic beams. And they also break down when you have these effects we call leakage, uh, effects from very different space scales Can be uh, are are apparent uh, are apparent, and you can't average them out. And these some of the strange polymer flows are examples of this. I'm just going to give you a couple examples uh, of where you can't use that generalized continuity equation. Um, One example was the Mir aerodynamics when the Mir space station wanted we wanted to get that back to Earth. OK, it's an, it was a part of the range of space it was going through was a very rarefied gas. And you couldn't use the same set of equations. But you really did need to do some computations to figure out how to get this back in, this, the spacecraft back in, so that you minimize the torque on the system. You wouldn't tear it apart into a lot of pieces, but you maximize the drag because you wanted it to burn up. You wanted it to be safe. And so a series of computations were done to try to, to, try to, have, to, to, to maximize the benefit, to minimize the danger of the reentry. And these same sorts of equations are good in gaseous microfilters. It's the same, same situation of not enough collisions. You can use the same techniques there, too. So for these problems that take place over very, again, huge ranges of scale differences, you would use the same technique. And they're both problems for which you, can, you don't have this equilibrium, a collisional equilibrium. The other example I wanted to show you were black talked to you about very briefly was black holes. Uh, black, you can't see a black hole, but, uh, but, sometimes, but their effects should be visible. And uh, one of the big questions people now are, are asking is what is the spectrum? How would you tell that you, when you were having black holes merging? To answer this question, because this was going to have a very strong effect on space-time, it would affect gravity waves, and from there you could test Einstein's theory. It's a very fundamental issue. And we believe that there are these huge black holes in the middle of our galaxy. Um, this, these equations are interesting because they can be broken down, rewritten in terms of 26 equations that looks many of which look similar to that generalized continuity equation. Anyway, some of the same techniques can be used. And there, um, this problem really has a long way to go there. There is no, at the moment, there, as far as I know, there is no complete solution of Einstein's equations uh, for the whole black hole merging problem. You use one approximation for the first two million years when they circle around each other, another one, uh, another one for when the, you have two that have... Uh, close to merging and uh, have merged and they're sort of ringing down and then you try to solve the full set of equations uh, in the, for the thousandth of a second when they actually fall into each other and merge. It's a very difficult problem for which we had developed a number of, uh, of high order methods, numerical methods, based on the solution techniques that, I, that we used for the fluid problems to try to work on this problem. Okay, how does all this work? This all works because of computers and um, oops is that me <laughs> and the, th- the scary thing about all of this is that by people are saying by 2015 we may have be- we may reach a plateau in our ability to compute Now I know, I'm not sure I believe this, but let me just show you show you just here where do things stand? Um, These, computer power, relative computer performance is a function of year. Now this is a qualitative curve, not a quantitative curve that I've got here. Computer power is supposed to have increased increased exponentially over the last 50 or so years. Um, It's not increased exponentially because of just taking the kind of computer we had in 1950 and extrapolating that to now. No, it's because of a number of discrete advances that have occurred and changed the way we have computed. For example, uh, the development of transistors, for example, the going in vector computing or parallel computing. All of these things have put us back onto a, an exponential curve from what they call these semi logistic curves here. Um, And perhaps another advance is the one I read about in the newspapers the other day, where instead of actual wires on a chip itself, we'll be able to to send information via lasers on a chip. This might keep us going a few more years. The simplest calculation I showed today, well, that fell into about this place A. The most complex problem solved was probably B here. We're 2006 now and this is the next level we're going to one of the scary things is we don't know if we will be able to keep up this growth we may need some really revolutionary concepts in computers to be able to do that for the last 15 or so years i've been keeping uh charts like this where i've put the, str- the strength the strength the speed of the of a processor in a computer as a function of number of processors. Um, this is 2001, and here this is 2006. Thank you. Time to stop, I guess. Uh, and what's interesting about this is in the last 10 years or so, we've moved up in power, by up up this way, by about a factor of 10, and we've moved in the horizontal direction by, by increasing the number of processors we've used by a factor of 1,000. And we really need to go in this direction if we're going to keep up the... Uh, Uh, the, the increase in power that we've had. I don't know what will happen. We'll need some new concepts. Now, one thing I wanted to begin to end with is this slide I started with, something the modeling process. And I think this is interesting here. You start with observations of the real world. You define your models, and these give you equations that approximate the real world. You, de- you set up a number of numerical algorithms, and you transform these equations into, into a form you can solve the acu- in the computer, and these algorithms are approximations to the model equations. You program these algorithms on the computer, and the computer uh, implementation is an approximation of the algebraic equation then you analyze all your results and you show selected interpretations of the results so my feeling about all of this is that we are at least four steps removed from the real world in these simulations and what is absolutely amazing is how well we do sometimes with this okay so there's a lot of points that i could say in summary here i'm closing down now but the um the, the, the idea I wanted to give you was that this is an extremely powerful tool. There are similarities in the approach and in the, and in the methods that we use that cover 10, 15 orders of magnitudes of physics. And when you're outside of that range, there are techniques that apply on both sides of the limits of that range. Again, uh, there's a very unified approach that we can take. And I'd like to thank a number of my colleagues for their help in putting this together, people from other laboratories, my critics, the agencies that have supported me, and I would like to thank you very much for your time. And if you have questions, and they aren't too hard, I'm sorry. Could you please use the uh, microphone so I can hear you? Yes. Uh,
3: i have to put on my glasses
2: to see my notes.
3: Okay. Uh, I would suggest in particular dealing with these phenomena. I'm sorry. I can't hear you. One can learn from nature, okay, to discover what these mathematical equations are, and that's one way to do it. And a fortiori, I think, the case of biology. You look in biology because nature is concerned with solving a general, you know, holistic problem. It's not concerned with a specific equation. It's dealing with many problems and wants and how to integrate over those things. And the consequence is that you can often, as in the rasfish, come up with intricate solutions that give you a hint as to what you're looking for. Now, there is one thing that goes beyond the biological case here, the importance of biology, and that ultimately will be the brain. And the uh,
2: what? The brain. The brain. And yes. the reason is
3: because in the case of the brain, you're really dealing with the simultaneous integration of the greatest number of factors because we are concerned with the observation of the complex phenomena of the world and dealing with them in all their intricacy and diversity. You know, so if we're trying to find some taxonomy of general equations and generalize upwards, I think that to look to biology, these special cases gradually build up in quantification those. then when you can move over to the brain to find these equations in the brain, which would turn out to be of a higher and higher order because it's the nature of the brain that that would happen, could be very valuable in research.
2: That's very interesting. I always thought that equations that would describe the brain would have to have a certain, would not be equations for a single variable in space and time, but would be an equation for a distribution. Well, we can get into this later. I've, been, I've thought about that quite a bit, and I have, and I have no, no answer, except you know, that's quite a challenge. <laughs> oh. Yeah.
1: Did you say anything about quantum computation?
2: I'm sorry, I can't Quantum
1: hear you. computation.
2: Quantum application.
1: Quantum computation.
2: Quantum computations, yes. Do you want me to say something about it? Yes. I sure hope it works, <laughs> because otherwise Moore's law is going to have us absolutely stuck. And I think quantum, quantum computing is probably the next chance we have of really beating Moore's law. I can't think of anything else. Oh, laser communication on a chip. Yeah, perhaps that would carry us for a little bit. But, you know, the funny thing is about these logistic curves is they tell you something very scary. This is not exactly what you asked me, but I wanted to mention this. The scary thing about them is that if you don't keep inventing, you die. It just dies right off. So you have to be constantly inventing I have no idea if quantum computation will really work um, because you have to decipher the information and it's, and it's a totally new paradigm in computing and I don't really think that I'm qualified to give a lecture on that. But unless we come up with something like that, we're going to be dying too. So that's, that's about all I can say. <laughs> yes.
4: <clears throat> For something like uh, coronal mass ejection, is there any way of uh, telling whether the results of the computation are correct or in yeah. the right ballpark?
2: Right. Yeah, there are lots of ways. Um, one is in the mass of the material that gets thrown out. The other is the timing of the event. Okay. Um, the, we're, we're, we're to the point right now where... Um, we Let me see if I can say this right, where we believe that the, the timing of the actual event is right. What's not quite right yet is the timing of the buildup on the sun until the event. So it's the initial condition that's unclear. So the, some of the new work now that I didn't really describe is really tr- testing initial conditions to try to get that photos, the, the, what kind of perturbations in the photosphere uh, are causing... Uh, could be leading to the events, and how you might tell ahead of time that it was going to happen. Okay? That's the beginning of an answer to that question. Oh,
1: yeah. Uh, Elaine, you've talked about uh, the computations and some of the results, but another area which I think is very interesting is to understand the sensitivity of your comp- computations mm-hmm. to various physical phenomena.
2: Right.
1: And can you comment about that?
2: Yeah. Uh, When you do a big simulation like this, and I think some of you in the audience know this better as well as I do, Um, your first thing you want to know is, the the first thing you do when you get all of these numbers coming out, I'll give you a little bit of how this works, is you look for things that are obviously wrong. Like densities don't go negative, should be positive. There's obvious things in the calculation that that should be right. The next thing you look for is another issue. I'm getting to your answer, Dick, is whether the solution, the, the calculation is converged or the physical phenomena that you're interested in that calculation is converged. And by converge, you mean if you do the same calculation with a smaller size computational spatial grid or time step, you still get the same answer for that phenomena you're looking at, OK? Then The other thing you have is theoretical results, okay? You compare your answers in limits to certain theories for which you have analytic mathematical solutions, and that's, those are good. Um, then, you, then you begin to reach a regime where you don't have all of these things to rely on. All you have is you have to produce a computation that some, has to explain something that somebody needs to know, for example, the wind field on the back of that of that destroyer, or whether this Shimizu's plant's going to blow up or not. Okay, all you have is your calculation and what you've learned from the previous ones. One of the things you do is you test parameters. What's the sensitivity? I mean, if I move that flame a quarter of a centimeter one way or another, am I still going to get a, get it? Am I going to be see a detonation forming? Or if I move this, change this obstacle from two centimeters to four centimeters, am I still going to have it? So you test the, the physics that's in the, in the calculation. You test the parameters. You have to test everything before you can really rely on it. And eventually you get enough of a feeling for what's happening so that you you, know, you can perhaps get away with fewer tests or you have more confidence in what you're doing. But it takes a long time to build up that kind of confidence you need in these calculations.
1: Uh, Can I answer that? uh, Well, there's one thing which I think is very powerful here, and that is that for people who are doing Mm -hmm. measurements, the computation can be used to tell you which measurement to do. Because, uh, say for example, in a combustion zone, Mm -hmm. uh, there may be a reaction rate that is unknown. Mm -hmm. And if it turns out that the combustion process is totally insensitive to that, then measurement people don't need to worry about it. But if there is some sensitivity, then I think that one of the great powerful uh, uh, aspects of the computational tools is that you can guide the experimentalists and help them know which uh, measurements they should make in order to be able to pin down the proper physics.
2: Oh, it goes both ways. It's really a very interactive process. You could, the computations can tell the experimental, the experiments what to look for. The experiments can tell the computations if they're way off base or not, or where to begin to look for something. It's definitely interactive.
0: You you described a a very interesting range of problems for which computations have been very successful and some for which it's still a challenge. Um, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on some of the more challenging problems remaining where you think the advances might be, and are there opportunities in improved algorithms, subgrid models, uh, things like that?
2: There are regimes of flow for which there are no solution techniques. These are even regimes we're interested in now. So there's where some of the algorithmic challenges are. Um, Some of you may look at me and say, oh, you're crazy. But uh, but I'll give you an example. A low-speed flow in a... Gas in a system that's about a centimeter high, or a micro, no, not a centimeter, much smaller than a centimeter. A few, um, or oh, say 50 microns high. A micro sensor, gas, pulling in gas, okay? Uh, there's, it's not in collisional equilibrium. We don't have a good algorithm for that because the velocity is low. There are other regions where we need a lot of, we need algorithm development and insights. Okay, uh, there, are prob- there are problems for which we, need, we uh, the whole techniques need to be improved. We need the problems that haven't even been attacked yet. I, I had a few that I was going to show you, and I th- we were running out of time, so I stopped. Um, there are whole problems that have to be attacked. there are complexities, interacting network problems, fluid problems, which I think are very good, and I'm not sure there are ways of solving a lot of them. So what were some of your others? There are challenges algorithmically, there are challenges in problems. Uh, That supernova problem scares me a lot. Um, My first calculation of that said that I should be able to see the result in 35 years. And then when I redid that and saw that it was 105, I got really depressed. We took another approach then though. We took approach of trying out what would happen if it detonated and got a lot of insights into that, what probably has to happen in order for it to to agree with the experiments, experimental observations. But I think there's challenges in just about every realm, algorithms, um, computers, applications. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did the simulation suggest that the flow of a turbulent flame is determined or indetermined by initial conditions? I'm sorry, the The turbulent flame? The yeah. flow of a turbulent flame is determined or indetermined or caused or uncaused by initial conditions. I'm sorry, I, I really I can't, I just can't oh. hear it. Maybe, maybe hold the microphone a little. Do the simulations suggest that the flow of a turbulent flame is determined or indetermined by initial conditions? By initial conditions, mm-hmm. the flow in a turbulent flame very much statistically. It's not very much um, in each individual simulation. That's you know that's a hard question. <laughs> All right, you've got you. That's a very hard question. It depends on the particular calculation. Uh, sometimes we've seen the flows didn't seem to depend very much on initial conditions they if if it okay this there there might be a way I can answer you it depends how far it is from a transition of some sort okay if the flow you're simulating is far from a transition then you can vary a lot of the initial condition parameters and you don't get much change but there is always an interesting range where, in fact, if you're doing an experiment, sometimes something happens, sometimes it doesn't. Very sensitive to conditions. It's nice to be able to pick them out. And sometimes you can do that, but that's where you need experiments. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Elaine, as a working biologist, I wanted to get into this question of what these numerical simulations are good for, because all the examples you've shown Mm -hmm. are ones in which, in some sense, the physical laws are, at least in principle, are known and I just wanted to point out that in biology we often study questions in which we don't know what the fundamental rules are and what right. we what we and often what's done and I don't know whether this is true in other disciplines is we don't necessarily know what all the rules are but we think that if we know all the rules we build a simulation right. and we see whether it turns out the way we think it ought to right. and we compare it with nature and that tells us whether something is missing and so I think one thing that comes out in the study of very complex systems where the rules aren't known yet is that simulations are used as an intuition builder to make us to give us a sense of whether we know what all the parts are and whether there's a part missing. I mean in a sense it's like taking a bunch of parts, you try to build a car, you put it together it blows up or it doesn't run or it turns for a while and then you know it starts emitting gasoline Mm -hmm. and so there are these things that happen when trying to understand a complex system in regimes where we don't even know what the equations are.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Right? We think we know, but we don't know. And so I just wanted to say that and see if you had anything to riff off of that.
2: Well, I think that I'm showed situations where we in what I've done where we know some of the some of what's happening. We may not we may not know all the processes is important, which is perhaps similar to what you're saying, but we know a lot of it. We put them all together, we see if we get the right answer, compare it to some physics or some reality. If we don't, we know we're missing something. We have to go back and find it. But I think in, often we know the individual physics in, these, in the problems I showed you. Right, so we don't know the, the, how, what happens when we put it all together. Right.
0: So that's often not
2: the right. And sometimes we're missing the physics. Yeah, no. That's that makes it even harder.
4: Elaine, I had a question for you about right here. Where? <laughs>
2: Down oh, oh, front here. <laughs> yeah.
4: Um, you know, you talk about the the, the modern trends as as you're uh, you're in the terascale computing range right yeah, now. Right. Yeah, are That's right. Ten to the twelve floating point operations mm-hmm. per second. You mentioned Moore's law and such.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, I think another thing that has to be kept in mind is that even if you are successful in this range and we're rapidly going into the petascale range which is another three orders of magnitude. But you're also generating a tremendous amount of data in all of this. And if you're going to talk about extracting the scientific knowledge out of these things, there are huge data challenges. And this applies to colleagues in the biological sciences area. Observationally, there's huge amounts of data. And so I was just wondering, in your applications areas, um uh what what experiences are you having right now as you encounter larger and larger bodies of data and uh how do you how do your how can you articulate the challenges in this area?
2: Yeah, well, through the years how we the <coughs> techniques that we've had to handle these data the, handle all this data has had to develop along with the amount of data um I think. One of the results of the quantity of data you have to look at is that we're no, some ways we're no longer really limited in, by computers for lots of problems. We're limited by how fast we can process the numbers and the data. One of the things that helped enormously was real-time visual visualization, because then at least you could often pick out if there was an error fast. Negative densities, that's the thing I mentioned before. The obvious things can be put aside. Uh, The more interesting challenge is to find the new physics in the data. And one problem I remember with that was we had a three-dimensional turbulent flow and we had a helical vortex. Uh, And at the time we were doing it, we had no idea whether we had a helical vortex or two rings because we couldn't really see it properly. that was one of the points I was trying to make is that some of these things you really must visualize dynamically. The other problem, rather interesting challenge I, I had with that was something again I mentioned if you don't look at these things dynamically, you get the wrong mechanism very often. There's lots of these little rules of thumb that we've all developed over the years for being able to process the data. Um, I don't I guess probably somebody ought to write a book on it. Yeah, sort of take all of our information. Uh, I know that NSF had a program on handling large amounts of data, and I don't know if they've come up with any be- anything better than just do it a lot until you figure out what you know what you're doing. Can you? S-
4: I think all of the agencies are recognizing mm-hmm. the fact that that mm-hmm. that in present day circumstances uh, <laughs> that the data challenges as you're. Uh, implying is actually greater than the computational That's challenges right. to process that information, mm-hmm. and especially with regard to dealing with higher dimensionality problems, right. you mentioned in, in uh, a fluid dynamics, nonlinear fluid dynamics you 're dealing with a three dimensional space plus time, mm-hmm. but then if you get into subgrid phenomena with kinetics and such you 're in right. a six dimensional phase space plus right. time. And then if you get into areas like quantum chromodynamics and high-energy yes. physics, my God, you know, with the, with the fundamental models and so forth, you have a much higher dimensionality. Okay. And so there are tremendous challenges there in, in, uh, in data analysis and, and new techniques for doing that, advanced statistical methods and so forth, which are going to be needed in the biological sciences area to, to more rapidly sift through the possible models and so forth. So it's, I think it's an extremely exciting time because driven by the, uh, by the very rapid advances computationally, so, so also comes a tremendous outflux of data. And, and uh, how you deal with that, I think all of the agencies, which is the question you're asking, I think, uh, are, are going to be making increasing numbers of calls for proposals that, uh, that demonstrate the ability to deal with these large volumes of data and, um, and share the ideas in an interdisciplinary way.
1: Thank you. Last question. Thank you. Uh, Some people work on reactions, explosive mixtures, which they do not want them to explode. Yes. So preventing explosions depends on ignition. So have you done any calculations that would contribute to our understanding of unwanted ignition?
2: Yes, and actually I even showed you some. That basic problem that I showed you in ignition, uh, in the transition of a flame to a detonation, is it really an ignition problem? The mechanism, mechanism, fundamental mechanism of the ignition of that detonation is, is, is different from the flame. The time scales are different. The locations are different. The whole physics of it is different besides the chemical regime, the, 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 the time scale, which means that the chemistry, which, which parts of the chemical reaction scheme is different. Ignition is extremely difficult because the problem with the ignition is that it's such a small, fast, even in flame is a small, fast event compared to the whole deal itself of the whole explosion and fire. And uh, I've done some to look at the different chemical regimes and their importance, and some to look at the different physics, but that's an absolutely critical problem. Whenever you get something small that can trigger something absolutely huge, it can be frightening. I'm, I'm happy to hear that are so difficult, There's quite, a few and, quite a few and I don't know how <laughs> We're getting some hints in some regimes. That's all I can say. But the expert is right here. It's Ed. (laughs) Okay, all right, you're off the hook. (laughs) Are there any other questions? Well, thank you very much. I got tired. Hmm? talking. Tired. tired? Is late? For it is, it yeah. is Is it okay? Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah.